Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to the Suite 212 sessions. As those of you who have listened to previous episodes will know, our plan to relaunch Suite 212 as a fortnightly show with alternating free and subscriber-only episodes were put on hold by the coronavirus epidemic, which has brought much of the United Kingdom's cultural life to a standstill. Instead, I'm conducting a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers and others about their work, conducted via Skype, so apologies in advance for the diminished audio quality, and more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom and beyond in the 21st century through individual conversations with people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them, and how the socio-economic conditions of the time have affected their practices. All of these will be made available for free via SoundCloud, but I'd still encourage you to subscribe at patreon.com slash sweet212 as they still take time to plan and record. You can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash sweet-212. Today, I'm talking to the former poet, writer and theatre maker Travis Alabanza. In the last few years, they've been noted by numerous publications, including Artsy, ID and Mobo, as one of the most prominent emerging queer artistic voices, and also listed in Out as an influential queer figure, appearing in campaigns with Mac and ASOS, and performing across the UK and internationally, working with artists such as Alok Vaidnanon, Ducky, David Hoyle, Scotty and others. In 2016-17, Travis became the youngest recipient of the Artist-in-Resident at the Tate Workshop Programme, starred in Scotty's Putting Words in Your Mouth at the Roundhouse, and in the Royal Exchange adaptation of Derek Jarman's Jubilee performed in venues such as the V&A, Tate, ICA and the Barbican, and had their work featured in The Guardian, the BBC, Huck Magazine and elsewhere. Alabanza has become a staple part of the queer scene in London and further afield, giving talks and performances at over 40 universities, ranging from the Royal College of Art, Central St Martins, Oxford and Cambridge, and abroad at Harvard, Brown, Austin, Texas and elsewhere. Their debut poetry book, Before I Step Outside You Love Me, was listed as one of the top trans literary books of 2017, with this, they toured Europe and the US, performing and reading at over 200 venues, including Harvard, Brighton Art Festival, Macedonia Pride and more. More recently, they have performed a piece called Burgers at the South Bank Centre and elsewhere, and had an installation called All the Ways We Could Grow at the Free Word Centre in London. Travis, welcome to Sweet 212. Hi. You can't see me, obviously, because it's audio, but I just audibly cringed hearing my bio read out loud. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a bit out of date, right? <laughs> it's, you know, it's not even out of date in like, it is out of date in terms of like stuff, but it's also just out of date in like my style and how I talk about myself. I think I was clearly searching for jobs at that time of writing that bio and clearly on a certain vibe. And I just don't talk about myself in the same way anymore. But it's nothing like an old bio to make you feel like you've got to update your website. Yeah, no, I, I did the same thing recently, actually. It's, it's always this really weird kind of trip through time when you look at your old bios or when you do an event and somebody yeah. introduces you. I think I think my record was having one that was about five years old and it was sort of advertising a club night I used to run in Brighton. <laughs> <laughs> it's just interesting, you know, I'm, I, I cringe and then I'm like trying to learn what my, how to take my cringe somewhere else. I'm really glad that I've grown and don't feel the need to say certain things about myself anymore. <laughs> what are you working on now? I mean, you know, all of these sessions, we've talked about the COVID-19 outbreak to some extent yeah. or other. And, yeah. you know, obviously a lot of your work is performance-based and it's very much rooted in communities and both queer, trans people of colour and wider communities as well. What have you been kind of doing during the lockdown? 
Well, it was funny because when Corona happened, I was in Brazil on the first part of the international tour for Burgers. And so Burgers was meant to be going to like, I think it was like six or seven different countries this year. And so that was my year. Like it was the first time I looked at my year as a freelancer and was like, wow, I like, I'm not, I'm planned ahead. I'm like booked in. This is like really, really exciting. And it was the first time I was kind of looking at what stability gives you and how stability lets you breathe in different ways. And then obviously Corona was like, no, that's not, that's not going to happen. Um, and so I've kind of been stumped short because my plan was to write all these new projects that I was thinking of whilst on the road with burgers. Cause that's kind of how I've always worked. I love touring and I, I'm good at touring and I love writing whilst traveling. And so for the first kind of four weeks of lockdown, I was just in bed, if I'm honest. And all these different art institutions and places were trying to figure out, you know, rapid responses. What's, what are we doing? And I was like, there's nothing rapid. I feel nothing rapid about this. I think I kind of felt knowing that this might be something that is not a four weeks and up kind of gig. And so I just slept for four weeks really, which, I'm kind of seeing as research because I haven't slept that long for a really long time. And now I'm crawling out of it, but nothing's happening. If I'm really honest, nothing's happening. I'm really struggling to figure out what to do because as you said, so much of my work is live. I would say that it's interesting that this came at a time when I was hoping to transition with my work anyway. I started writing scripts for film and TV. I've started writing plays that um, I'm not in. And so I'm kind of developing those ideas and trying to tick away with them. But it's hard to start a new part of your practice at the same time as your industry no longer really existing in the same way. So I'm trying to be gentle. That's really interesting. Personally, I've just finished a really big project that I've been working on on and off for, uh, for 17 years, which I finished yesterday. Congrats, cheers. Thank you. So that's, uh, that'll be out. Um, next year but yeah similar thing for me a kind of process of transition at a time when you know the world as you know it doesn't really exist so you know it's quite hard to orient yourself around any kind of creative field or even kind of political concerns really I think at the moment. I'm so glad you said the political too because for me like when I talk about my art the two are just they're always there together like I can't really figure out how to make work when I also can't figure out politically what's happening and I actually tried to like vocalize this with a friend yesterday for the first time I was like I just don't have my grasp on anything so I feel unconfident to create any output because I don't really have my finger on at all what's happening which prompted me to do like the first thing I've kind of done this whole time which is at the moment I've got five different community grassroots organizers that have taken over my Instagram account and I haven't been calling that an art project but I actually kind of think looking back it's been the most creative thing I've done in a while I was getting really frustrated with, I mean, I'm always frustrated with having a platform, but uh, I was getting really frustrated in this time with what Instagram was doing. I didn't like how it was interacting with me. So I was going to delete my app. And then uh, I realised that actually I don't have my grasps on politically what's going on. And I was going to take this week to learn from certain people in private. So instead I've just got them on my Instagram and they're doing these like kind of lectures in public on my Instagram stories. So yesterday we had Kate, uh, which is a prison ab abolitionist group. And today we have a LGBT youth group taking over. So that's kind of been my first step into having like a little output again. And I'm enjoying it. And it has nothing to do with the arts industry. <laughs>
this is something I'm finding too, that in the absence of, you know, the wider world in which we usually kind of make work, certain ways of formulating ideas and developing them are falling away, but maybe other ones are kind of coming to the surface. And as you say, they're not always ones that happen in through the processes which you would normally make work. And I think that's really interesting. Maybe it'd be nice to to go back to some previous projects. I'd like to sort of talk to you about the immersive installation you did at the Free Word Centre in London last year called All the Ways We Could Grow. I wonder if you'd like to describe the project itself to our listeners and, you know, the sort of themes you were working with. So um, Free Word Centre, to like paint the picture, I guess, if you haven't been, it's a literary centre. It's in the middle of like quite a business, like dull, like not really, when you think of literary centre, maybe some people think of that, but like, I'm like, this is not the vibe. And it's kind of like glass office vibe. I guess in the year that I was working, started working with them, I knew they were going through a shift of who ran it, a shift of like how they wanted to look at their creative programming, wanting to be, they kept on using the word interactive. They wanted more people to walk in the door. They wanted more people to come in. They kind of wanted a, a facelift. And as um, I think is becoming a trend in when I turn up at institutions, it's often at the same time, whether or not I know it or not, when they planned a facelift, which is fine because I'm saving up money for Botox myself. Um, so, <laughs> but uh, they came and they said, we want something fun, we want something interactive. And I was like, these are the words I'm hearing again and again. But I was excited because for me as a performer, so much of my work happens and then it disappears and people don't get to visit it and see it. And I was really excited to create something that would be there for a while. You know, four months is like a long time for my words to be somewhere. And I think there's something about the politics behind my work that often goes hand in hand with disappearance, with basements, with not taking up space, with institutions saying, we'll work with you for two hours and then you go. And there was something really attractive about Free Word going, no, you're gonna come and take up a huge amount of space. They gave me the theme, they invited me and they wanted me to talk about gender, which wasn't a, a plot twist or surprise. And this was in a moment where I was starting to feel restless about talking about this subject. But I wanted, and the reason I was becoming restless is because everything felt so serious and everything felt so dry. And I remember when I started thinking about gender, it was fun. Everything was fun for me. And, and clearly as I started to realize there was nothing fun about gender for me that I needed to find that fun again. And so I turned, my idea was, is that I wanted uh, the office people upstairs to have to take away their meeting rooms and instead have their meetings on big pink fluffy beds. And there was not really anything deeper than that at first. I was like, I just want to take away these disgusting office chairs and replace them with beds. These people need to like have some pink in their life. Normally I wouldn't go so aggressively one dimensional pink, but I really was so uninspired by the room that I was like, this room needs a radical change in it. So I made this sleepover with my friend and artist, Denny Colback, who I used to have sleepovers with when I was younger. And so I called up my childhood friend and I said, you know those sleepovers we used to have when we dressed up and you put me in my first dress, you put me in my first heels. I want to make that. And I know it sounds cliche and I know it sounds whatever, but I want to turn this office space into our sleepover room. So that's kind of what it was. And the premise kind of grew out of that. And it was this idea of what could these office men or people be if they were allowed to try on something else? And what does trying on possibly lead to? And so we made this kind of sleepover fantasy in this uh, office complex place. How was it received? Uh, what sort of coverage did you get and what were the audiences like? It's funny because like when it opened, 
the audience that came to view it was very much my, primarily my audience, which is like younger queer and trans people. And so they were interacting and loving it, but they almost weren't the audience that I was excited to see interact with it. I kind of like knew that a queer and trans person would find it fun to like look at all these texts about gender and lie on a bed. And I actually really wanted to see what happened when it was left alone and who came in and stopped. And what was nice is they extended the project for an extra two, three months because of the footfall coming through. And what happened was that people would walk past, kind of see the big pink writing and then walk in. And people started really enjoying, I would chat to like the receptionist staff there and the workers, they loved having their lunch on the beds, sitting on the beds. A lot of them would, uh, I'd see other future events happen there and people would move it to this big pink bed we had. And that bed is now at the LGBTQ Outside Project, which is like two free doors down, which is a homeless LGBTQ charity. And they're loving the bed too. And it really is just like a basic pink bed from eBay. But I think people just lived for it because we strapped these like LED lights around them. And it's weird what two pound LED lights can make people do. But I think the reception was good. I think, I wish I went to visit it more. I got really busy and, and didn't get to visit as much as I wanted to. But I think for me, what was really nice is that it was this big piece of text that I'd written about sleepovers and gender and trying things on that I like was maybe reminded me that I can still write about gender and be excited about my writing. And you could only see it from the bed. And what was really nice is how many people would tag me in posts a month or two months on saying they sat down and properly read this text and really resonated with it, which felt good. I think it, it was, good and important for me as a project and also told me that the next time someone gives me a brief around gender I can also say no. <laughs> <laughs> That's an important thing to remember because I have felt a lot of tension in my kind of writing and filmmaking career between having this sort of very strong existential need to help people to understand these complex identities, my own and the sort of wider trans and queer histories that I am engaged with, that I'm formed by and interact with. So there's existential need to express that. Balancing against this intense frustration with getting pigeonholed and sometimes thinking, oh, I just want to talk about like football or video art or whatever. I know that's something you felt a lot in your work as well. Yeah, I, I think it's like, it's hard because I think also like, because of the way the internet worked, particularly in my experience of how it created my career in lots of ways. I think I've grown up in front of a well-archived version of myself through my work. I'm only 25. And when I first started appearing in the media, I was 21. And me 21 talking about gender is very different to me at 25 talking about gender. And I think what's hard is I maybe pigeonholed myself too. I think I saw that this was what people were interested in hearing about. So I then also created that. And how I'm trying to wrestle with that now is that I'm still wanting, I still think there's a use, like you, there's still a useful need. I, I'm like, I think it's important that I archive what I'm thinking around gender. But I think what for me now needs to happen is it has to be a new form. So I can't keep on doing it in the same form that I've been doing. So that's why the, all the ways you could grow, I was like, I'll make the exception because this is in a big physical space. And so it's a new thing for me. And then there's still something new and pushing in my practice. And that's why I'm like, okay, I can do it again. But now it has to be on TV or film because I've done the play about it. And I've done all this writing about it. I've done that and I need to move on. 
but there's something that's exciting about going, okay, this could be a TV episode watched by millions of people. Okay, I think I can, I think I can dive back into it for that. But I also think when I first started talking about gender publicly in my work, I was so sure of so many things. And actually now, like, I'm really, I think it's probably just growing up maybe, like, I'm so unsure of every, everything around my gender that actually saying so many things about it publicly, apart from like, I don't know, and like, be right back, <laughs> feels like uh, quite hard. Like, I think if someone was like, make some work about your gender right now, like, whereas like five years ago, I'd be like, yeah, non-binary, here we go, da 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 da. Now it's like, it would just be a sign that says be right back. <laughs> well, so much of kind of acquiring knowledge is coming to understand your limitations and so much of writing is kind of working out what you do know and what you don't and yeah like you I mean through my process of writing about trans issues I've found out that I actually knew a lot less than I thought I did I'm a lot less confident about what I do know. I mean something that interests me you know what you've just been talking about with the way your your work has developed and continues to develop is the way you're moving between spaces and you've got you know this core issue that you want and need to talk about and you're looking for the best outlet for that and the ways to reach maybe new audiences but maybe more importantly the right audiences I know this is a process I went through as well working out the best forms and institutions to communicate with people through and I'd like to sort of you know talk about this in the context of your burgers piece which began in 2018 and as you said earlier was, was still running internationally this year so I wonder if you'd like to tell the audience about you know what that piece was like how you developed it where the idea came from because I know there's a story behind it and you know where you performed it and what the responses were like. It's so interesting having this time to finally pause and look back on burgers because um, it's not the first interview I've done where someone's mentioned oh it's 2018 I'm like damn I was really doing that for two years of my life and my artistic practice I think it's important what I'm learning to know is that my journey to ending up, so Burgers was a theatre show, let's just name it. It was in theatres. It was my first time making my work that then became in like proper theatre places, like not the clubs, not one-off pop-ups, theatres. And people are keep on saying, oh, this is your branch into theatre. And I go, it's more that before I didn't have the resources or access to get into an industry that hates working class people. I was always making theatre in my head. The stuff I do at the clubs, the queer places, the queer spots, that was theatre to me. I just didn't have the access to call it theatre or turn it to a theatre show. And so what Burgers was, is I always, I always imagined Burgers. And that's what people don't, I hated how they'd written about it. Because they were like, this is Travis's first show. I'm like, fuck off. Fuck you, theatre world. <laughs> no, it's not. This is the first time you're seeing my show. But I'd been making shows and I knew that I wanted to end up in theatrical spaces. And it's interesting you bring up audience and I wanted to bring my audience that I built with me to those spaces, but then for them to meet what I think is one of the modes of like a typical British institution is theatre, you know, like Britain loves theatre. And I was like, I want to fuck with that as a form and I want to be there, but I want to bring these people from the clubs to that space. So everyone's still there. And that's kind of where I was thinking about with burgers. And how it kind of started was in April 2016, I was walking along Waterloo Bridge in London, midday, and someone threw a burger at me and called me a transphobic slur. 
and no one did anything. And it was during the middle of the day and it was very, very busy. And I turned around to kind of look for people to do anything and no one did anything. And it's not really that act, you know, of course, you probably know this, like cis, cis people often think that that's the horrifying thing that made me want to make the show. But the violence was like, you know, not actually what was shocking. What was more shocking is I carried on with my day. I just walked. I didn't even remember that it happened. And then my partner at the time asked me how my day was and I was talking about work. And then I suddenly went, oh my God, and a burger was thrown at me. And then I was like, okay, this is fucked. You know, that thing of like how entrenched violence is when we're gender non-conforming and trans and all these things. How sad. I was so sad. I was so sad that like, I couldn't even remember that a burger was thrown at me. But it was 2016 and I just kind of let it go to bed. And then in 2017, I realized that burgers were appearing in all of my work in the background. So I'd have projections and like little burgers when I like, put a burger in. And my, my person was doing my animating at the time. I was like, why? And I was like, I don't know, just put it in. And I was like wearing clothes and I started stitching little burgers on me. I was like, okay. And this was pre Katy Perry doing burger at the Met Gala. I need to say that. Um, and then I started basically, you know, 2017 was also the year that I faced the most violent harassment I'd ever experienced and started editing how I look outside in order to be safe. And so it was also the year that I'd written Before I Step Outside You Love Me, which was a collection of text written on public transport. And I basically was like, I feel like the UK needs to hear about harassment through our lens. They don't need to hear any more about my personal journey to accept myself. I'm not interested in them hearing that. I need them to hear about the fact that whilst they're busy debating whether or not we're real, we can't go to the shops. And so burgers turn into a cooking show where every night I invite a random white cisgender man from the audience on stage to cook a burger with me and we talk about harassment. You know, what were the audiences like in response to this? You know, obviously the show, as you just said, has this audience participation element. I'm specified that you wanted a sort of cis white man to be involved with cooking the burger on stage. Uh, what were the responses to that like? They definitely changed over time. So when I did the show in 2018, it was at a queer venue, East London warehouse, to try and get the show on its feet, to get other theatres to see it. It was the sh- Hackney showroom were the venue that supported my work and said, we believe in this. Lots of other theatres got the script too and said no. Some of those then booked it or tried to book it later for a tour, but anyway. Um, so that audience, you know, was very different to then a year later doing it at the Traverse Theatre, Edinburgh Fringe, as part of the British Council Showcase. And for me, I thought when I first started in 2018, it was hard because I was like, okay, these white cis men, da 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 but the room's on your side. And what I learned in 2019, again, the climate around trans people had heated up as well. You know, I'm doing this show kind of coinciding with when the climate around trans people is getting hotter and hotter, you know? And I remember doing it at the Traverse on the first night and we'd had some email scares that some TERFs, anti-trans protesters, were going to be turning up. The show starts with me inside this huge um, cardboard box basically and I open the box and I come out of the show and it's always a nice moment for me because I can open and spot some faces I know or see and I remember the traverse I opening the door and going 
in my head, everyone's got grey hair and not in the queer cool way, in the like, actually everyone's grey haired and going, okay. And going in my head and being like, you're in a different place now. And it was petrifying because people weren't coming, not everyone was coming to be on my side. Not everyone was coming because they heard great things about my show. Some people were coming because they had a year-long membership to that theatre. Some people were coming because they heard it was about trans people and wanted to have an opinion about it. You could feel it in the room. You could feel the tension. You could feel the two or three queer people that had travelled to Traverse, which is not normally a venue they may go to, sitting there wanting to support me, but also feeling that. And it meant that the audience response is different every day. You know, there's horror stories, but there's also real positive stories. I'll never forget a lady came up to me after the show and her husband was the volunteer to cook the burger. And I remember that he was charming, went along with it, but wasn't giving much and was very guarded, which normally doesn't happen. Throughout the show, they normally start to... Un and the lady came up to me and she goes, I just want to thank you. And I said, why? And she goes, well, one, it was a great show. I was like, thank you. And she was like, but also I need to apologize. And I said, why? And she's like, I have a group message with people on my street and we've been talking about your kind of people. And I went, what do you mean? And she said, well, the trans community and we've not been saying nice things. And now I need to go into my WhatsApp chat and tell them that we need to stop doing this. And I said, oh, okay. And she goes, I was like, okay, thanks for letting me know that. So like, I think my husband was being guarded because he knows that actually I have a problem with this. But now I need to tell him that I don't have a problem with this and I've been bad. And I went, okay. And I just paused because it wasn't a good feeling. However, what it did remind me is that yes, these audiences were getting harder, but this is exactly what I wanted to do. I no longer wanted to play to a room where everyone was already on my team. Because then I can just go to a bar and chat with my friends. Like, why are we making the work? Yeah, and it reminds you of the uses of working in the arts. And, you know, I mean, the arts in its broader sense, be it literature or film or performance or painting, whatever. You know, it reminds you of the importance of that, because for all the talk of the arts being this liberal bubble, firstly, it just isn't anyway. And secondly, for queer and trans people, and especially queer and trans people of colour, Lots of people, you know, as you've just pointed out, will form part of that liberal bubble, but carry all sorts of kind of explicit and unexamined prejudices that you can then challenge through the work. And I think maybe that's that's often more useful than just writing a comment piece for The Guardian saying, this writer has said trans people shouldn't exist. Here's why they're wrong. Exactly. And I, I, I think it's, for me, performance is the only space that I can try and change power structures for an hour or try and feel like there's different power structures at play, or try and experience a reality where I'm in control, you know? And I think what Burgers did for an hour was, one, they didn't see me as well as me in the hour, but two, I got to put literally a white man under the heat of a kitchen, and that show these things that they were thinking. I wondered why the show did so well, because I sometimes when a show you know, the show went into mainstream theatre success in the sense that big, big venues were pricking it. And it always makes me pause and go, fuck, have my politics been watered down? What's happening here that's made... I don't trust, you know, I don't trust when something does well because I'm like, wait, these people are liking it? Like, oh, have I turned into, like, a liberal, like, flag wearer? What's happening in this? 
And I, I had to ask someone, I had to like, I invited all my radical friends. I was like, please come and see the show. I need you to like, try and tell me why like, queer rads are loving it, but also like liberal mums, it's worrying me. And, uh, <laughs> and um, I think, you know, a lot of my pals said, politics aren't slipping in it, but what you're doing is really, it's about your human relationship. It really humanizes you and therefore also gender non-conforming and trans people. And I think if the show happened five years earlier, there wouldn't have been that urge maybe, but this was happening at a time of increased trans hostility in the press. And I think people just, there were so many people that I met in the audiences, especially when we toured to more like other places outside of London and Edinburgh that came and you could tell that they came with all the hearsay they heard about trans people. You could feel it in the room. And this show doesn't address that hearsay, but it's just giving them something else. And I could see them like, it made me really understand how some people become internet turfs because I was like, these people were carrying this weight of a hearsay and they needed an hour to go, oh my God, I was really wrong. And I'm like, I don't think you ever really believed it, did you? You went down a little rabbit hole, you know? Yeah, and it's consent manufacture from the mainstream media. And, you know, by the mainstream media, I mean the Guardian rightwards. Mm. You know, listeners will obviously know that I have a, a long and complicated history with the Guardian that began with me writing a column for them about my own gender reassignment, which began in 2010. And like you, actually, I had a similar thing at the start. I joined Twitter when I started writing that column because I kind of thought it was the thing I should do if I was going to be a journalist. And I remember quite early on, I was publishing these these columns and that was all I was doing, really. That was all I was known for. And lots of my Twitter followers had Lib Dem in their bios. Bear in mind, this was like June 2010. It was, you know, right. socially acceptable for about another three weeks after that, I think. But um, <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they're gone now. But, um, <laughs> you know, that, that happened. And I had a similar thought process. I was like, am I writing for Lib Dems? What am I doing wrong? But, you know, in the end, I thought maybe it was good to kind of, you know, bring those people with me, at least to a point. You know, obviously, over the next, like, six or seven years, there was a rise in trans and queer visibility, which I think peaked with Laverne Cox being on the cover of Time magazine in 2014 with that famous transgender tipping point cover and article. And, you know, in the States, it became broadly the case that everyone, well, not everyone, but enough people to the left of the Republican Party sort of took on trans rights as a cause. Whereas, you know, in the UK, it was a lot more fractured and the sort of younger end of the Corbynite left was broadly pro-trans, I think, with one or two high profile and unfortunate exceptions. Conservative right, I think, was sort of broadly anti-trans, but not unitedly. And a lot of the worst anti-trans sentiment came from what likes to bill itself as the sensible centre and regular listeners will know like the depths of the contempt I feel for those people but you know obviously the Theresa May government was holding a consultation on the Gender Recognition Act of 2004 which was a important piece of legislation with a lot of quite significant caveats which Christine Burns from Press for Change was very involved with campaigning for that would quite readily admit. But, you know, that obviously shows some of the limits of working through this sort of liberal, legal, political infrastructure. And when the consultation was planned to give more recognition to trans people's own, like, self-declared identities, this backlash that had been building through publications like The Guardian, The New States and The Times, The Telegraph in particular, apparently sort of respectable publications really came to a head. And, you know, it got to the point where, you know, I live in East London, I'd get on the bus and I'd see these 
stickers saying things like women don't have penises get over it in a attack on the stonewall slogan you know which didn't bear in mind that stonewall had only really started campaigning for trans rights and recognition you know not long before maybe three or four years maybe 2015 or so so it was a really unpleasant and oppressive climate and i and many others stopped working in the mainstream media at that point we just got kind of shouted down I got invited onto that stupid genderquake program on Channel 4. Um, I turned it down. I would have liked £800, but not enough to like sit on a Channel 4 show with people yelling the word penis at me um, over and over again. And that being lauded by the sensibles as, you know, the kind of debate we should be doing. Yes. So, you know, these, these, were, these were the options if you allowed the mainstream media to set the terms of what you're doing. And what I think is, is you know, really interesting in your work is you know through writing and performing your own shows through getting spaces through getting extended runs you know at venues as big as the south bank center even you're kind of setting your own terms for understanding and discussion which i think is 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 far easier than you know as i said just kind of going to comments free and pitching a response to you know whatever drecks come out this week you know yeah definitely it's weird because that genderquake also feels like miles ago. It feels like they've just amped up even more since then. I got offered a lot of money, considerable amount of money for that show too. And uh, it makes me think how much money and bargaining they were willing to do. And I know I got bargained when I said no to, and that told me the climate, that told me that they don't care. And it was actually, genderquake was a really important moment for me because again, this goes back to our, the bio at the beginning. I'm trying to figure out why I cringe at the bio. And I realized I was read, I'd written that at a time when I was still interested in something media. The things I'm listing as accolades there have nothing to do with my art. It's all about status and media and Mac and ASOS. And I'm like, oh, wow, that was where I was trying to go because I was like, this is this thing. And Genderquake was a huge turning point for me because I remember watching it and going, I want nothing to do with this. I want absolutely nothing to do with this. They'll never give a shit. I want to do this on my own terms. And I started saying, fuck you really loudly to a lot of big heads that were interested, you know. They wanted to turn me into like exactly, you know, what I can imagine. They wanted me to write a memoir at the age of 24. What the fuck do I have to say at 24? Jesus. All these things. They wanted to make a TV show. All these things that, you know, I'd probably be sitting in a house that I own right now, you know, if I said yes to these things. And, and I said, fuck that, I'm an artist. And the thing that excites me about being an artist is you get to make your own terms. You get to say, fuck you, this is my show. And you know, the, the anti-trans people tried to come for burgers and they kind of come with this moral thing. And I said, you can't do this because like, this is just my art. I didn't force you to be here. You didn't choose to be here. And you just didn't like it as a piece of art and you can attach all these words to it as you want, whatever. Whereas I think when you're in the media, there's this vitriol that comes that you can't escape. And I feel like for me, you know, I didn't escape all of the vitriol with burgers. I will say, and I don't say this to when it's non-trans people interviewing me, I would say that the barriers I had to get through to have the sold out show at the South Bank, the amount of institutionalized rate-isms, rate, I don't know what it was, combined of all the things, and the amount of saying, no, this is what I'm doing with my show, makes me fully aware that like it's no surprise that I need to take a break of doing trans stuff after but I'm like it wouldn't have even got through the door if I played by the media's rules you know and so I think that's what I've learned because South Bank tried to do this thing where they said 
you know, we've, this is the first time a trans person sold out South Bank. So don't come with that. That's not needed here. I don't think it is. I know some trans people that performed on the South Bank. But I think what I was trying to hear below that was we're not used to having this politic on this stage. And we are also surprised that it sold out in about two hours. And I said, what do you think stopping you? They said, well, our audience, our audience, our audience. And I said, it's so interesting because that's what stopped me from getting yeses for all these things. Everyone talking about their, their hypothetical audience that may not be able to deal with me. But actually we've proven that they can, or we bring an audience or we bring this. And I think it's that. I think sometimes I'm like, is Britain stuck in this thing because everyone keeps on going off hypothetically what they think British people are? And don't give credit for people's ability to shift and change, you know? Yeah, and people may be already being much better people than they're given credit for. And, you know, it's an ideological move, right? Again, I mean, I've talked about these sort of sensible centrists who think that everyone is transphobic and islamophobic in particular and just like racist and anti-immigrant more generally and this is aiming to create a sentiment and not reflecting it and it's certainly not engaging in any sort of intelligent critical relationship with it and it's one of the biggest problems with the UK media I think. It's interesting to hear you talk about what you've turned down as well. I obviously am white and middle class and I am a binary transsexual woman so I have certain privileges and advantages that you don't have and lots of others in the broader trans community don't have and I have had to jump through an awful lot of hoops do an awful lot of things I didn't really want to do turn down a lot of other things I mean I really wish I'd made some sort of art project out of the things I'd turned down I wish I'd kept a diary over the last 10 years you know the genderquake thing was particularly interesting because the people making that program had clearly paid attention to trans media discourses because the e- email I got inviting me to take part in it was very much kind of saying, no, it's not a sort of debate where, you know, people are just pitted against each other. It's a sensitive dinner table style conversation looking at the nuances around gender identity. And I was just like, I don't trust this. I remember getting the email. I was just about to go and see um, 120B at the Rio and it came in like the moment before I left the house <laughs> and um, I sort of looked at it and I was like no this is this is too clean there's something wrong here and of course I spoke to them the next day and kind of teased out of them that, um, that you know actually I wanted to invite some very high profile like quote-unquote gender critical journalists I always hear the phrase gender critical and think of Alan Partridge describing himself as homo skeptic but um <laughs> like uh you know they it, it was it was going to be a bun fight and I ended up I, I think I forgot it was on I was playing football the night it aired and I got home from my my kickabout and just saw this thing a bit on and my twitter feed was just on fire and I thought like no amount of money could be worth doing that show I mean the people who did do it like fair play to them you do need voices to, to go into those spaces and, and stand up to these people. But yeah, but I, I couldn't do it and it's, it's not for me. And I'm much happier being kind of off the front lines of those media discourses now. Um, I mean, you, you're writing a column for the Metro, which is an interesting place to be writing for because it's, it's not an obviously ideologically aligned paper in the way that, you know, most of the daily papers are. It's, almost certainly to the left of, but definitely less awful than the other big London free sheet, the Evening Standard. Um, what's your experience of writing for them, for them being like? Yeah, I think, again, it's this running theme of, like, uh, that's maybe coming out through this interview, that, like, I'm clearly excited by when the possibility of my work and ideas can reach people that I didn't think it would. And the Metro thing, 
I'll be honest, it came about at a time when I, they offered it to me in a January. And a January where I was like, I've got no money. <laughs> um, so I'll be honest that there was definitely that in the equation. But I also was like, I want people to see me as a writer. I want people to see that I can write and I want people to see that I can back up my opinions with things. And it's not just about performance. I think there was something in me that I was like, oh, people aren't seeing that there's like theory or thought behind my work because maybe there's some coded stuff in my aesthetic or the way people look at femininity and gender nonconformity and campness. So I was like, I want people to see that I can like write. My experience writing with them is that uh, it's really hard to come up with what you want to say every two weeks. It was meant to be weekly. It's now two weeks. It went to monthly at one point and that's all very much me. I would say that it's hard because I don't know if the Metro audience love me <laughs> um, or whatever that audience, I also don't really know who that audience is sometimes because it's quite hard to decipher with a free paper, but also that online sphere and all of that. I would say it's really helped me because I love that there's a, you know, I hate pitching. I hate having to go through the process of going, I've came up with this idea and now I've got to pitch it. And by the time you've came back to me, I've actually no longer want to talk about it. And I love that, for example, when I was in Edinburgh for Edinburgh Fringe, I was so like, this is so white. And I couldn't believe how white Edinburgh Fringe was. And I was like, I need to write about this. And I loved that. I was like, oh my God, a column's due next week. I can write about Edinburgh Fringe. And what was great is that, again, I think because I have an online platform that's separate to the Metro, what's great is Metro is almost like the hosting platform, but actually I'd written about something that then the whole Edinburgh community shared. And they're not necessarily people that would normally read the Metro. So I think it's, again, this synthesis of, other times also I got a nice text from a friend from back home that said, oh, my mum waits and reads your Metro column all the time. And she's just asked me about my pronouns, thank you. It's not my goal to keep on having these nice yummy moments, but also again, it's this like thing that drives me, which is I know that it's not for everyone. Again, it's like what we said before, me and you couldn't do gender quick. Our idea of how people on there were good at it, they could do it. It's not, I'm not saying that everyone needs to write to these places that broaden a different audience, but I've noticed that I'm quite good at communicating what could be seen as a complex issue in an accessible way. That means the mum back home has now asked someone about their pronouns and started a conversation. And that's what excited me because I was like, Metro was the only paper my mum had in the place. You know, Metro was the thing that was also spreading gossip mags. So it meant that my friends were listening to as well if I can then do you know in the metro my first column was about how we can't just praise gender nonconformity on screens we also have to protect us on the streets I'm like that excites me that that was the first column I had in the metro that said hey all you drag race viewers let's actually talk about street harassment and it's been exciting being able to do that you know it was I had one with trans pride where it was like it was about corporations and pride and about like how we can't let trans pride also become things thought about corporations, you know. I've also had one in there that was talking about turfs and racism and the links between that, you know, all these things that maybe would exist in an academic journal or in a long read on somewhere else. It excites me that it's in the Metro squeezed between like some advertisements about sun cream uh, there's something there's something in that that still excites me yeah I mean I remember like picking up the metro on the bus to my studio in, in town in 
and seeing you in there just being like right okay great this is <laughs> this is really good to see i mean yeah something it'd be interesting to to just lead on to is the way that you know your writing has grown out of performance performance giving you a kind of a space to write um a space to maybe kind of express ideas and develop them quite organically quite a different way to writing and you you talked elsewhere about what it was like when you were given space to write and an editor for me something that was very important learning while I wrote was that you know while writing there's always been this myth around writing as you know the kind of inspired genius like struggling away in their garret but you know just somehow having the mark on them that lets them create these amazing things out of thin air like writing is an incredibly collaborative practice you're always like discussing ideas with people you're you're in dialogue with other writers both in person and through their texts you're responding to the market to some extent i think and to to audiences and i think that's really interesting in in your work and the way you've spoken about it elsewhere so i'd like to move on to talk a bit about a performance you did at the Tate in 2017 to tie in with an exhibition that I found quite limited, quite interesting, quite frustrating, which was the Queer British Art exhibition they put on to commemorate 50 years since the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in 1967. You know, the show was quite white, quite staid in lots of ways, pretty middle class. You know, a lot of the work in there I didn't find particularly interesting. Um, I've actually had an interesting experience this week because I have been, um, you know, I finished a manuscript collection of like trans-related short stories and, you know, started to think about what might go on the cover and think, because all the stories are set in the UK, so thinking like, well, you know, British trans visual artists, what is there? And, you know, I, I know there are British trans visual artists out there doing interesting things and particularly like queer and trans people of colour, you know, like Raju Rage and Evelyn Fakoya and others, both of whom I know and like work with a little bit. But, you know, if you look online, like stuff is like overwhelmingly American. And it's really hard to find a lot of like British trans visual culture, I think. But, you know, you did a, you did a performance in the space, partly about being in that space and what it meant. And, you know, it's up on your website. I watched it this morning and there's quite a big queer audience in there, sort of quite young queer and trans audience. And you can really feel in the room the joy of taking over that space. And you know, the laughter in the room when you mentioned that it cost like £16 to get into the exhibition. So I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit about maybe what the experience of working at the Tate in that show was, was like. Yeah, that was the end of my residency year. So that was kind of the last thing of my residency there. They'd asked me to do it because I'd raised my concerns about the Queer and Now exhibition from a very early point onwards. So as artists and residents there, we actually got to hear about the exhibition quite before it was happening and got to look at what was it and then kind of showed it to us as if we were going to be excited because myself and um, other queer artists that were, two other of the artists were queer on the residency programme out of the four. And I remember them bringing us into a room getting so excited to show us all the things of the thing. And I remember all our faces going, what? And I said, I didn't, and I remember saying to myself, I said, I didn't know queer was meant to be boring. It's like, bloody hell, this is the most boring thing I've ever seen. And I remember them being like, <gasps> and I remember me also being a bit like, oh my God, you've grown in the last six months because you would have never said that on your first day. And like, look at you, you're like not as afraid of this place. But for me, Tate, like the year working there, I 
really was petrified the whole time. I started, I never went, you know, I don't have a university degree. I don't have that experience of maybe following the rules of school. And so it felt like when I describe it, my friends talk back to me who have been to university. It's like, oh, you were acting like Tate was your professor. And I was like, right, I kind of was being P's and Q's, watching my manners, which is so not me. And I remember this Queer and Now exhibition kind of being this moment of being like, what the fuck? No, this is so annoying. And I'm annoyed that I've given so much space to this place and my politeness. And actually, I felt like it was a personal thing as if I decided the curation of this probably very long planned thing. But I was like, how dare you have me as the artist in residence the same year this is here? And like, I'm going around with a tape badge that says I work here and I have to walk past this exhibition that shit. It was crap. It was so boring. And then the, you know, then, so the performance was actually, I mean, I'm really spilling some tea, but you know, whatever. But like the Queer and Now party, as far as I'm aware, maybe I'm wrong, someone at the tape can correct me on this one, but like, as far as I'm aware, that big event where my performance is happening was set up to celebrate the exhibition. But also if you notice the programming of that had all of the responses to the critique of the exhibition. So lots of black queer artists, lots of gender non-conforming people, lots of working class people were all programmed at that Queer and Now festival for the day, rather than put hung up in the tape. And here was my issue. I was so fuming. I was like, you're gonna use this party as a way to go, look, we did have black, queer and trans people in the tape. Look, we did have this, but not where people are paying 16, not where they're walking through. And none of these people can see the exhibition because it costs 16 quid. And actually the people that have spent 16 quid are pissed off because they've spent 16 quid to go walk around and look at old white men. That like, sure, if you look with glasses, maybe there's some queer coding in there. I don't know, like fuck, you know? And I was, I was just fuming. There's no other word for it. I was just fuming. And so this performance for me was like, they offered it to me. I lied and said I was reading some poems. And then the day before I said, I'm going to need this, this and this. And I said, I just need to do a lip sync. Didn't really tell them what was on my audio. Didn't really tell them what I was going to say. Didn't really tell them what I was going to do. And I said, I'm only going to spend four hours on it because they don't deserve any more of my time. And I did that and it was like joyful laughter, but also I think saying something, people were laughing, you know, because it was like this or whatever. And I said, I'm gonna give them a lip sync. They, they paid me to do 30 minutes of emotional queer poetry. I, they don't get it. They don't deserve it. It was like walking out. And what's fun is that actually the flowers at the end of the video that I throw over, the artist that catches them is Zinzi Minot, who was the other black queer artist on residency with me at the same year, who also had issues whilst working there. So yeah, yeah, that piece for me, I also love that it's still on YouTube on and it's, and it's the only piece that will probably stay on my outdated website that definitely needs a facelift. Because for me, it was a real changing point when I started saying, this is the artist I am. And I'm more organic when I listen to myself and my gut and my politics. And that's more important than trying to mind my P's and Q's of an institution that ultimately doesn't care about me. And so it was a real great moment because I remember leaving and watching everyone clap and all the queer people being like, we really loved that. And me being like, oh, people respond better when I'm being myself. Uh, like, you know? Absolutely. Um, you know, what it really reminded me of was that I think the last time I saw you 
perform, which was at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, which, you know, some listeners will know, has a reputation for hosting like queer and trans performance that goes back 50 years or more. You know, indeed, I recently watched a documentary that's available free on the BFI site called What's a Girl Like You? dot 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 from the late 60s, early 70s. I think some of it's in at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern and some of it's in uh, Northwest England, like Manchester, and I think maybe Bradford as well. But, you know, the RVT has been under threat of closure for quite a long time. There have been kind of community campaigns to save it. And I think anyone who is in London or passes through London who has an interest in, like, queer and trans counterculture has gone to see things there. Indeed, I went with um, a filmmaker who was visiting from Argentina and said, I want to see something queer in London. And the RVT was the first thing I thought of. And I had to... um, had a battle to get tickets for the fundraiser you were doing because it was long sold out, but we managed to get two tickets uh, and came and saw you. And the, you know, the atmosphere in the room was, was really beautiful. It was really kind of full of love and people, you know, really enjoying the show, enjoying all the humour in the show and understanding that the humour was sort of made by them and for them and with them, you know, in a way that, you know, with all the best will in the world, you might not get in some of the bigger spaces you've worked in. So I wonder if you'd like to maybe just talk a little bit, you know, we'll, we'll end the show with this if you'd like to talk a little bit about when you've worked in spaces like the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, what they mean to you and why they're important. I loved Cheers fundraiser. Oh, see, and you get, you get a heart and a feeling when you remember that performance that you can't get when you're talking about another performance in a, in a space. And it's because the form and again, this form and purpose, I feel like is coming up through a lot of, whereas with the other places I've talked about, I have a very clinical, I'm going to these places because this is where this is happening and I want to do this. When I go to the RBT, I'm like, I'm just going, and I'm going to see what's going to come out on stage. And I can't wait to see my friends. And I can't wait to see this performer and this. And it's about, it's not really about this. It's like about coming together. I think for me, the reason these spaces are important is I categorically would not exist without, as an artist, working right now, being able to pay my rent for Touchwood a couple more months, hopefully, I wouldn't be able to do this. I don't think we'd be having this interview. We wouldn't even know who I was if it wasn't for the RBT, period. And I think for me, when I talk about earlier theatres only seeing me as doing my first theatre show then, the RBT had always seen me as the artist that is now how these other people are seeing me. I remember going to the RBT when I was 20 years old, 19, 20, turning up and it was bar whatever, and it was an open mic. And I'd never been to one of these before. And I saw these weird performers and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I'm loving it. And they were like, well, are you a performer? Do you want to do it? And I was like, huh? And it was the first time someone had knocked on my door for me to come rather than me barging in. There was no barging in. There was like, oh, you want to do something? Sure. And I think so much of the art world for so many different people, whether you're trans or person of colour, all these different things, it's always about us having to barge through, carve space for ourselves. And there's something about, for me, the queer performance scene and the RVT that has let you figure out who you are without the barging happening first. Yeah, I just, I just think that those performances are invaluable to me. And, and it's why that I will always, no matter where I am in my career, no matter what I'm doing, I try at least once a year now. I mean, it's gotten less and less, but once a year I host a bar, whatever and I watch it just come about and it's the time where I'm most myself. And I say to everyone, you know, I say to my friends, when I started doing more and more shows, my friends are like, are we really having to still come to all of these? I was like, no, 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 please don't. Like, it's a different vibe. But I say to my friend, all my friends, no matter what, when they see me host an RVT show, they run to book tickets 
and I say, how oh my God, how have you all turned up? And they would go, well, we know you're just going to be your most authentic self. We're going to get whatever comes out of your mouth. And that's what I love about this space is I know at the moment the RVT is campaigning to save Vauxhall at the moment via this COVID crisis. So I really recommend people checking out the Vauxhall site and the RVT site for how they can support and petition because I don't think we'd see, again, as someone that's young but is interested in history and loves reading about history, from what I can see of history, queer art right now looks very different to how it did look. But I think that without spaces like the RVT, we won't get the next generation of actual, like, real queer work and visuals and aesthetics and performance. We won't get it, so we have to support them. Yeah, I completely agree, and we'll share the link on Twitter with the show. I think that's a lovely place to stop. So, Travis, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been lovely. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's, it's always a real kind of joy to talk about this stuff because, you know, in my attempts to escape pigeonholing, you know, I find myself not having these conversations as much as maybe I, maybe I should. So it's been really good to, to do it with you today. We will be back very soon with more of these sessions. We have the Lithuanian filmmaker Diamantis Narkovicheus lined up. I am talking to a couple of comedians about coming on the show, uh, a couple more artists as well. You can find us on Twitter at sweet underscore two, find us on Facebook, find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash sweet212, subscribe to us at Patreon slash sweet212. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. I'll be back with you very soon. Take care. Goodbye. <laughs>